All right, good evening. Welcome. Thanks for coming out. Um, two, two announcements. It turns out, of course, I've messed up already. Uh, one, Milo has the parking passes back there if you need one for next month, so feel free to pick one up. Uh, two, uh, it's November 21st, not November 17th. I have on the, I don't know why I put the 17th. Today's the 17th, right? That's why I put the 17th. Uh, so it will be on this day in November. No, that doesn't make any sense. It'll be on the 21st in November. It will not be on this day. Um, yeah. All right. German language, literature, culture, here we go. Um, one of the most remarkable aspects of Germany is that it, it illustrates the point that Ostler, I mentioned this book, Empire of the Words, uh, and Nicholas Ostler where he says it's good to track languages in some ways more than nation states or kings or wars because it, it tells us different things and it tells us some important things. Germany illustrates this perfectly. Um, unique, almost unique, in, in European and in Central European history certainly, Germany has 3,500 years of unbroken cultural tradition. The main heart of what is Germany today was the main part of what was Germany in an identifiable Nordic culture 3,500 years ago. The language has been developing in an unbroken stream. It's never been conquered. It's never been transformed by an outside force. And so you have this incredibly old, continuously developing civilization in the heart of Europe that, as everyone notices, is quite different from the rest of the country surrounding it. <laughs> this is the reason it's quite different. And so that's one of the things I want to explore tonight. But you can only see this if you study the development of the language. Because the current nation of Germany has only existed roughly for 75 years, and not continuously. It came into being in about 1872-73, Bismarck is your man here, sort of ceased to exist right after World War I, got rearranged a little bit, maybe existed a little bit between the wars, and then of course after World War II it was cut in half, so it ceased to exist again. <coughs> And then in about 2000, you know, you get unification back together again for a, a decade or two. So what we think of as the political nation of Germany basically has almost never existed in the entire history of Europe. It just hasn't. But the German language and Germanic people speaking various versions of German has existed continuously in an unbroken line for about 3,500 years. It's a completely strange and unique situation. So we got to, so go way back. The first evidence we get for the culture of Germany, of what will become the Germanic cultures, however you want to think about this, um, is what's called sort of the Nordic Bronze Age. And this is about 1500 BC. Now, again, because all we have are, are rough implements that are left, um, not a lot of inscriptions, it's hard to know precisely what the correlation is, but there does seem to be a fair bit of evidence that some of the, uh, what we identify now as sort of the Saxon gods were already being represented. Of course, this is loose, right? Because, you know, it's a long time ago, representation changes, but it does seem to be continuous. Uh, much clearer evidence by the time you reach 700 or so, what's called the pre-Roman Iron Age. Um, by then, you really, the inscriptions start to become clearer, the style becomes clearer, the continuity and development of iron implements and iron uh, techniques for smelting iron uh, become much clearer because it, when you make iron, you leave a lot of waste around. Uh, and this makes it obvious that you've been doing it. So how you're doing it, what you're making, uh, it is very much more available. Um, and then you get around, oh, zero, just called year zero, you start getting 
The Romans encountering, the Greeks refer a little bit to this, but the Greeks basically refer loosely to everybody who's not Greek as the barbarians. The, the Romans actually tried to distinguish between flavors of barbarians. They thought they were all barbarians, but they will say like Gaul and, and Goth. And, and the Gauls are the Celts, loosely, right? The, the Gauls are the Celts, and, and, and the Goths, Ostrogoths, Visigoths are, are the, the Germans, uh, Vandals, these people. Um, Again, roughly, because some of the references aren't perfectly clear. But by zero, we get written evidence that they exist. And we start getting Latin authors using words from what would this be, Proto-German, and then translating them back into Latin and saying, well, this is what they call themselves. And so then we start to get actual written evidence for the spoken language. We also start getting runic inscriptions uh, around this time, but those are very rare still. And so we start getting some literate evidence. But what's clear in all this pre-literate era is there is this coherent group of peoples who share a similar language, many offshoots of it, but a similar Proto-Germanic uh, language. And they're there, and when the Roman Empire runs into them, they sort of run into the Gauls and the Goths roughly at the same time. And what they discover is that they can conquer the Gauls. That's doable at least to a certain extent. They don't make as much headway against the Germans, and in part because the Germans live in these really dense hardwood forests. And all the technology that the Romans used was for, for warfare was ill-adapted to this. And so what they discovered is if you march into a hardwood forest, you're really vulnerable. And one of the great defeats of the Roman armies ever occurs in this way when they just get ambushed out in the woods, and they, have no, they just really can't fight back very effectively. Um, and so, again, this heartland holds out. Now, they have a lot of trade with the Romans. They travel to Rome. Romans travel to them, but they're never conquered, and this is, this is key. So you can imagine the scale and scope of the Roman Empire kind of washes around the heartland of what is today Germany. I mean, the, the Roman Empire surrounded them, essentially, but, but they were never conquered never settled by Romans, never governed by Romans. They held out there. And they held out there for a long time. Um, and then around 350s-ish, 370s-ish, like everybody else at this time in, in the ancient world, they encountered the Huns, the unpleasant Huns. <laughs> Nobody had anything good to say about the Huns. Um, what's curious is it is presumed that the Huns conquered sort of, again, the, the Gothic heartland, the Saxons, but it's not clear that this is what, in fact, happened. There's also a significant amount of evidence to suggest that they sort of fought for a while and then worked out a deal. Because shortly after the Hun conquest, there's whole Gothic armies attacking the Gauls as, as a team. Like, hey, let's why fight when we can team up and go beat up these people? So the Hun conquest, whatever it was, was very light on top if it was conquest at all in the, in the sense of what we think of it, it seems to be very quickly they teamed up. And one of the results of this is the famous, you know, here come the barbarian hordes, as we hear the history, screaming across into the Roman heartland, and Rome is conquered, and the Western Roman Empire falls. Dark ages ensue, right? See, of course, and then in... And then in 13 or 1400, the Renaissance, right? And there's sort of this gap, right? There's sort of this thousand year, like we never talk about that. Well, what's going on for that thousand years is the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, uh, Saxons, Angles are, are very busy indeed. And this is where the historical record becomes um, clear, very clear as a matter of fact. So if you look at the map on the back, the one that says Western Europe AD 526, all the dark area is the part controlled basically by the, Goths, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths, most of that by the Ostrogoths. Saxons are in England, but these are the, this is the holdings of the Germanic-speaking peoples, which is to say even more, even larger in some ways than the Western Roman Empire. It's huge. Did your history books forget to mention this to you, right? That there was this, this unbelievably vast swath, right? This is, this is why English is a West Germanic language. 
because the Saxons rolled into England and said, hello. Uh, and, and they settled down uh, and, 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 started, and, and started intermarrying and, and changed the local dialect and had a huge influence on the development of the language that was to become English. One reason English is such a mongrel, because of course we have the French coming very soon. And so you got French and German and the old English Celtic, right? Sort of, and you get English. Uh, but this vast area, the G Germanic people spread out. But again, what's strange about it is there's no, it's not a nation. There wasn't one ruler, there wasn't like, a, I mean, Theodoric is, and there's all, lots of people going on, but you know, there's these major important rulers, people you look back in history, so this guy controlled this area and that person did that. But it was never like this really highly organized Roman imperial system. It was a bunch of Germanic tribes spread out all over the place. Sometimes they fought with each other. Sometimes they teamed up and fought with their neighbors. Sometimes they didn't have rulers. And, and sometimes we just don't know what was going on. But you got this huge expanse, which almost immediately collapses. Um, the, the Gauls sort of have a resurgence in France, uh, but, but in, in Italy, it was a two-track system. The, the, the uh, Ostrogoths were in control, but they didn't bother the classical traditions of uh, the, the natives, the people who were there. They didn't really disturb the Roman system. They really left a two, it was a parallel civilizations living together. This was a, a, a decision made for, for the use of rule. And so this, again, you know, Italy is lost, Spain is lost, you know, it starts to shrink back in. And it shrinks basically back into where you get the point of what is roughly today modern Germany, right? It goes all the way back there to where it came from. But again, this part is really never conquered. The Huns are gone now. And then you get you know, sort of the succession, the Merovingians are in here. Uh, Charlemagne sort of sets up the idea of the Holy Roman Empire. You may have heard of this. It's famously not holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. That's what you need to know about the Holy Roman Empire. It, wasn't, it was not holy by any stretch of the imagination. It certainly wasn't Roman, uh, and it wasn't an empire. It was like a loose confederation of free towns and the Hanseatic, I mean, there's all kinds of weird political agglomerations, they voted for an emperor. So that's sort of a weak kind of emperor when you get voted in. And then they didn't <laughs> listen to him when they didn't want to, right? Um, and, but, but this idea that there is this possibility of a Holy Roman Empire, now that is important. The notion that there could be this pan-German uh, European entity that's very large and massive as an inheritor of the Roman tradition. And generally people say, well, that's just crazy. You know, that's just the Roman dream. Well, it's not so crazy when they had it. About 526, they had the whole Western Roman Empire. Um, and, and then, uh, greatly, we enter the written era of Roman history. Of Roman history, scratch that, German history. Uh, you get some text a little earlier, again, you know, all these things are vague, you know, exactly when this is being developed and dug up. But... Crucially, it's the 12th century, roughly, that you get the Nibelungen lead. Um, great, great epic. If you want to read a great epic, the Nibelungen lead is, is just wonderful. But it does, it's more than just being wonderful, uh, and great poetry, and rousing fun, and, and, and hilarious in sections, and just, uh, there, there's a wedding night where the, this, this, the, the bride has been tricked. She's this very powerful woman. Uh, by the husband, Parsifal has helped to trick her into marrying this guy who she would not have married otherwise. And she sort of realized on her wedding night that this guy isn't really that much of a hero. And so she beats him up and hangs him. <laughs> ties him up. He's not hanged by the neck, but ties him up in, in sort of the wedding chamber. And so a couple of nights later, they have to sneak Parsifal in to beat the crap out of her and beat her into submission so that this guy can, can marry her, well, can you know, consummate his relationship. That's a great story. It's many, many uplifting moral uh, sections like that. But... But what you get in the Nibelungen Lee is, is several crucial elements. One is there is clear historical reference to events that took place in about the 5th or 6th century AD. So it, again, it establishes that there has been this continuous, uh, in this case, oral tradition of stories reaching back another 800 years in the past, 700 years in the past. And that we have historical external reference to verify that some of it is true. 
Beyond that, the mythological system that is invoked in various places in the name of Lugan Lean lets us know that that oral tradition goes back, again, very much further. It confirms that some of the Iron Age digs, that yes, this has been here continuously. And so it's very much like Beowulf, which is, is a, uh, also, by the way, a, a Saxon-influenced text, that you know, it's written in 1000, but it gives you an echo of events that demonstrate an oral culture from hundreds of years earlier. It's sort of an, an echo that comes from the past. And so one of the first major written epics that we get, the Nibelungen Lied, uh, again, both, is just wonderful, um, and, and provides all of this evidence that confirms what the archaeology had, had made us suspect, is that there's been this coherent oral tradition in this place, unbroken from at least zero, but again, probably much earlier than that, to you know, now the, the 12th or 13th century. Now it's very well documented. Now we know that this is continuous. It becomes not a problem. And as you move forward, you get, you get the, like Parsifal by uh, Eschenbach, uh, another great story, same guy, right? Parsifal, he's very popular um, during the, the Middle Ages uh, because you know, the French have the Parsifal epics. You get some of this that comes out in the Ar Arthurian Knights. Parsifal will show up occasionally. Right, so as, as a figure, he was crucial, but you, you get him here in the German, and these are wonderful epics. And then, and this is the thing to know about German literary history, now that we're in the, the written history, is you'll get a period like the 12th and 13th century, we'll get all this wonderful tales, epics, poems, and then nothing of note for a couple hundred years. I mean, they're writing, there's things there, but they really, you know, sort of second, third rate, they, they fall off the map. So while the rest of Europe is having the Renaissance, Germany is like, eh, Renaissance. <laughs> but notice, if you're in France or Italy, of course, the heart of the Renaissance, or Spain, you have a Romance language. You're speaking a, a version of Latin. In the case of France, medieval Latin, medieval French, you know, a six of one, half dozens of the other. They're not the same language, but boy, they're, they're pretty close. And so there's these resonances in Italy and in France and in Spain that you don't have in Germany because German is not a Latinate language. It's not a Romance language. And so they're doing a lot of translating. They're translating these epics in Germany into Latin, the, the, the classic Roman works and Greek works, into Latin and into the vernacular languages. But it doesn't have quite the grip that you do. It comes a little later. You get someone like Erasmus, who if you haven't read in Praise of Folly, read in Praise of Folly, because it's, it's a great text. And he's, he's, they call him Erasmus of Rotterdam. We're not exactly sure where he's from, but um, they call him Erasmus of Rotterdam. Um, and, and he was considered one of the leading thinkers, but he's, he's quite late to, to the game. Um, most importantly at this time, of course, is, is you get Luther. So if you think of how the rest of Europe responded to the Renaissance, Germany produced Luther, right? It's, 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 a, it's a very different response. He's extraordinarily well-educated. He's got a lot of the classics in him. But rather than taking the, 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 the humanist line and the personal line, he, just, he takes the Luther take, which is... This church, you know, has problems, has 95 problems, as a matter of fact, has precisely 95 things that are wrong with it that need fixing. And this, of course, kicks off the Reformation, which is, you know, a big event in European history, create all kinds of problems that, again, you get this shutdown. Not a lot of German literature. As, as the Catholics and the Protestants are warring and everything is going crazy and, and you know, it's vicious that, oh, the... the, the the wars of the, of the religious wars of the Reformation are, are not a bright spot in human history. And Germany was what modern German principalities were right in the middle of that. Right in the middle. Because Luther, of course, is, is the German. Um, as that settles down, you get a couple of things. One, you get the Baroque flowering of German literature. This is another moment where nothing's been really happening. And then, boom, you get this different from what's going on. You get this incredible uh, eruption of really great first-rate German literature. Um, the example I use here is Grimmelhausen's Sim Simplicimus Seuss, uh, which is kind of like a uh, gargantuan patagruel kind of, it, it's very funny. 
and, it, and it's very German, I guess. I, saw it. I don't know how else to say it. If you've not read it, it's, it's a wonderful tale. Um, but the other thing that's happening now, and this is, takes us right a little bit into the 18th centuries, is right about 1750. So you have to remember the Reformation is just settling down. After the Reformation, the Catholic Church sort of started getting its shit together. It's like, wow. We've got to get organized, we've got to redress some of these problems, and we've got to uh, go back and convert the people back to Catholicism. And so in Germany, you have the King of Prussia. And the King of Prussia has problems. One of the problems that he has is his, his state and the states around him in which he's variously allied and interested are split between the Protestants and the Catholics. And the aristocracy has limited use for the king, so they're always trying to outmaneuver him and take his power. And you also now have, because it's, it's, here comes the Industrial Revolution, right? Here comes the Enlightenment. You have the rising of sort of a, it's not really middle class isn't the right word, but you have the rise of the non, they're not the aristocracy, they're not the church, they're the, you know, sort of the bourgeoisie, here they come. What do you do? This is a big threat if you're a king. Um, and, he, and they thought about this and they said, well, here's the problem. The sort of the, the, the wealthy traders and stuff, they're not educating their kids to, to, in the way we would like. The aristocracy seems to be working a lot with the Jesuits. The Jesuits were really now pressing their program, excellent education with the Jesuits. But the king of Prussia was suspicious that they might just really be trying to convert everybody back to Catholicism so that they could take over the German countries and return them to the power of the Pope. He, he suspected this because, of course, it was true. This is exactly <laughs> what the Jesuits were trying to do. And so for the first time in European history, and pretty much for the first time in world history, they came up with this idea. Let's have uniform state-sponsored <coughs> education. So one of the things you have to understand, this is the first country to say, let's have everybody, by which they meant all men, let's have everybody get a primary school education funded by the taxpayers. And so this way we'll create this educated mass who are fit for the modern needs of modern industry, modern at the time, but we would recognize this problem today, right? We're always talking about, oh, we need engineers to, so we can succeed economically. This is the same argument. We need more educated workers because this is the future. But really it was primarily a bulwark against the power of the aristocracy and the rising power of the bourgeoisie essentially. And the education was to emphasize skills, technique, necessary for you know, basic writing, arithmetic skills, so that you could succeed in modern industry and you would produce the people you needed. Also, discipline, order, and um, sort of the importance of the king of Prussia. <laughs> that, that this is what they, the, literally this was what the curriculum was. Reading, writing, arithmetic, the king is great, sit there and be quiet. <laughs> and, and what's amazing is, is this is happening right as the Enlightenment is happening. But if you look in the rest of Europe, Spain is sort of having its own troubles. France, you know, is famously getting ready to have some big troubles. But the, the rise of the, the bourgeoisie, of the trading classes, of the working classes, um, who aren't just peasants, who aren't just sort of, uh, you know, worthless and nobody, is creating tension all through the old governing systems. The king of Prussia cracks the secret. Educate them, but educate them so they believe in the king. That's what you want. You want an educated population, but an educated, a populace educated correctly. <laughs> and what it did is it gave a channel for all of the desires of the rising classes. They couldn't be the nobility. They couldn't be the king. The military was basically closed because that was sort of the, the realm of the aristocracy in Prussia at the time. But now I can become educated and maybe my son can become a school teacher, and maybe his son could become a professor, a hair doctor professor, which is the status that you would have if you became a professor. We just can't even imagine today. But it was like becoming a member of the aristocracy. There's a great uh, 
um, story from Mark Twain about a, a hundred years after this. One of the great intellectuals in German history, a guy named Momsen. He, he won the Nobel Prize in like 1902. I think I put him on the list there. Yeah, Momsen, 1902. Um, but Twain was at a banquet with all the great literary intellectual figures and the Prussian guard is there with the swords and when everybody comes in and they get the salute and oh that's this guy and oh this is that the person and it's all very formal and Prussian and wonderful and Twain is there and then everybody is seated and he thinks the banquet is getting ready to roll and then all of a sudden the guards just snap really to attention and everybody begins leaping out of their chairs and whispering it's Momsen, it's Momsen. And, he, and Twain is just like, wow, blown away, in part because their response is so powerful. Because this guy is an intellect. He's, you know, it, it, he was the equivalent of a rock star or a president or the Kaiser, you know, coming in the room. So this respect for education was in part because it was the early forming of this desire to improve yourself and to have, be able to advance in society organized in such a way that it reinforced the state. This is the, the German education model. By the way, it's the model that we adopted for America when we decided to do general education. We said, what system should we use? We should use the German system. It was specifically designed to build uh, obedient workers. Yeah, <laughs> sheep, sheep, yes. Obedient workers with enough skills to advance, but no more than that. They needed to know to respect the president or the king or whoever's in charge. They needed to be morally upright and quiescent. And so many of the difficulties that are surrounding with German history, like people say, well, how is it that you know, the, the German populace got so excited about the war when the, when the Kaiser started going for World War I? Well, this was built into the system. The middle class was not built as, an, as a resistance to the Kaiser. Even the Social Democrats got excited about it, and they were, in theory, the opposition party. At times they were in opposition, a lot of times they weren't that oppositional. But it was, it was built into the heart of their system. And so you have this continuous culture, again at this point running for you know, 2,000 years, that develops the first really systematic attempt to educate their entire populace at state expense. This is, it's a revolutionary. I mean, we recognize now, we saw how important education is, well, 250, 200-ish years ago, they worked it out, and they started on it. And what it produces is, in part, the, the Aufklärung, the German Enlightenment, a list of thinkers that is just mind-boggling. Herder, Holbach, Hippel, Kant, Lessing, Mendelssohn, Thomason, Wichsel, Weisse, Wieland, and Wolf. Klopstock, I mean, Hegel, Nietzsche, I mean, uh, Schliemann. The, the, the list is just Lawrence, Einstein, right? I mean, you just, just keep Everybody, 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 just roll the names out. It's unending. By 1900, the most influential intellectual language in the world is not French, it's German. After several hundred years of intellectual and cultural dominance, French is giving way to German. Why? Americans. William James, educated in Germany. Frederick Douglass, educated in Germany. Right. The, the, the power of their intellectual systems, of their institutions, is coming to the fore. And they've been there for a long time. Remember in Hamlet, it's, 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 it's Württemberg, right, that, that Horatio comes from. Right? It's a German school, low these many years ago. They've been there, but they've just been reinforced their status has been reinforced. The importance of education becomes incredibly high. And so again, from the sciences, you know, dye manufacturing, chemistry, uh, from both its technical aspects to pure scientific research. I mean, who built the atom bomb in the United States? German scientists, right? Who did, the, who did our moonshot? It was all the American moonshot. It was German scientists, Werner von Braun was not an American scientist. I mean, he was, because we kidnapped him at the end of the war and made him ours, but, you know, he was just, you know, he, he, he it was a German scientist. These guys were top of the mark in philosophy, in literature, again, we'll talk more about the literature, but, I mean, in every field, practically, they dominated. 
Uh, and then, whew, bit of a blot coming, right? We all know where this story goes, unfortunately. You get World War I, which you can't really blame entirely on the Germans, but they did seem to be somewhat responsible, um, <laughs> followed by the, the, the problems of the Weimar Republic, followed by, of course, the, the, the hideous experience of World War II. In the ashes of World War II, German is almost a dead language. I was talking to a gentleman who was raised in Alsace-Lorraine after the war, and he said, we did not learn to speak German. He said, I was robbed of the language of Goethe and Novalis because the war was so horrible, and what had happened was so horrible. Uh, French literary critic, critic Jean-Francois Lyotard, who was educated in, he knew German, he said, an entire culture has been killed for me. You can't teach in German, you can't study in German. It's gone, it's wiped off the map. It's, it's ashes. Uh, if anybody wants to read the book, I would say uh, Thomas Mann's uh, Dr. Faustus. It's one of the, certainly one of the great works of world literature. Um, so it's appallingly painful to read. There's an excellent new translation. I was out a couple of years ago, about five years ago. Now I can't remember the translator's name, but it's spectacular. I highly recommend it. But, it, but this is, he, the, the narrator, uh, Professor Zeitblom, um, is writing the biography of a friend of his, composer, in, I believe, Hamburg, while it's, the war is being lost. And so he's sitting at his desk writing while Germany is being destroyed. His sons are out fighting and being killed. And he's watching, and it's, it's a meditation, a painful, painful meditation on the destruction of everything that Professor Zeitblom has lived for. And Thomas Mann wrote it in Stanford uh, while Germany was being destroyed, while everything he believed in that was great about Germany was being destroyed, and he couldn't decide whether or not it was a good thing. In the, in the book, he posits that it might have been deserved. It might be necessary to blot Germany off. 2,000 years of continuous cultural tradition brought to that. Thomas Mann himself saying, I don't know, should I write in German? But it didn't go away, I would say, thankfully. Because there's an, another side, and this came out even just before World War I started. German poets, philosophers, thinkers are saying, look, we're this crazy nation of poets and philosophers. What do we, we can't go to war with people. We don't know how to do this. We know how to make things. We can do some trading, but we're mostly just a bunch of poets and philosophers and composers. Haydn, Beethoven, Mozart, I mean, wow. What are we doing with this war stuff? And this seems to be the switch, right? Because this is the other current in German history. And so slowly, since World War II, Germany sort of first divided, again, notice this, Germany as a state didn't exist from whatever, 45 till 2000, when was the unification, 98, 2000, whatever unification was, not very long ago. 89, 89, thank you, yeah, 89, 90, uh, that, that didn't exist in, in any considerable degree. It was occupied for much of it, and then it was split and walled down the middle. And now it's unified. And wow, Germany is back. It never went away, really, of course, but it's back. Largest economy in the Eurozone is Germany. Number one language in the Eurozone is German, right? The, the Euro ideal is being driven in a large part by the, the French-German negotiation. These are the two great powers. German culture, if, if you look at the Nobel Prize winners, um, you'll see, you know, 46 Hesse, although Hesse himself said that seems like a, a, a belated attempt by the Academy to say, ooh, we're sorry about some earlier things that we had said about you. Um, uh, but you get Nellie Socks, Herman, uh, yeah, Herman S. Thomas Mann, 46, Herman Hesse, 66, Nellie Socks, Heinrich Boll, Les Canetti, Gunter Grass, Jelinek, Hertha Mueller, 
right? The, the, their, their literature didn't go away. In fact, the literature has come back very strong indeed. Mueller's plays and Alfreda uh, uh, Jelinek's plays uh, particularly are translated almost immediately into every European language and performed, almost immediately. Moments, never in, in, in America, by the way, because we don't do that. Uh, but, but, you know, in Germany, in Europe, this is, big, this is big doings. And so we have this strange sort of almost conundrum. The most powerful state in the Eurozone has existed for maybe 75 years and is different from many of the others. But it has a 2,000-year history. And if you look at the literature of that history, wow, you can see it. Again, I just, just, I, I tried to mention, you know, once you hit the Enlightenment, I mean, you get sort of this just wave. But some things to potentially to consider, one is uh, Musel's A Man Without Qualities. If you want to know what's going on in the German world just before World War I, A Man Without Qualities. It's an extraordinary book. I mean, truly amazing. We never finished it, unfortunately. But it's not one of those books that sort of was going to wrap up anyway, with everybody going on a honeymoon or the murderer was caught. It was, it's not that kind of book. Uh, but, but he explores in detail the psychology of just about everybody in the German-speaking world in, you know, in a sort of time setting. 1911, I think, is the official date. So I'm right around in there. Musel. What was he like? What was he like? So that he could give he, a portrait of all these people. He was a ponderer. He was a quiet ponderer of, of his world. And he was looking back on it, trying to figure out what the hell happened. Um, and that was basically, he was one of those people who was reflecting in the wreckage of World War I going, huh. And there's a lot of this literature, of course, of people standing back and going, wait a second, what the hell happened? And, and one of the great works is certainly uh, A Man Without Qualities. I mentioned Dr. Faustus, a similar meditation happening during the war, when the, when the knowledge of what's actually happened becomes clear. You, you get that book. If you go back earlier, you get Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, uh, widely considered one of the great classics in world literature. I think certainly it holds up for that. It's, it's often considered... Goethe was, uh, Nietzsche was considered the finest prose, is considered one of the finest prose writers in German along with Goethe. So if, if, if you're considered like as good a writer as Goethe, then you're in good shape. At the heart of all this, though, I think you have to put Goethe. I mean, Goethe is German literature. He was there in the Enlightenment. They actually have a special kind of literature called Weimar classicism. What it really means is Goethe. I mean, this is, it just means there's this guy who's so amazing. His, 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 uh, the, the Sorrows of, of Werther uh, was by far the best-selling book of, of its day, and certainly the most influential, even though it was incredibly misread. Everybody thought he was embracing the suicide of Werther, and he was, in fact, trying to point out how stupid it was, how, how, how wrong-headed it was, but that sort of got lost on the audience. Uh, this upset him. Um, but the, the work, if, if you're not... With, with Werther, if you're not familiar with that one, check out his Iphigenia and Taurus. Because this is a very different work where he tries to take a classical, well, he doesn't try, he takes a classical Roman theme and brings it sort of into the consideration of modern world issues. It's a beautiful reflection from uh, Goethe, and of course, highly poetic, and more poetic in German, of course. This is one of the difficulties with people like Goethe. He doesn't just translate that well because he's so poetic in the original language. I've mentioned this with Persian, right? Uh, some of these languages, you almost can't get the poetry out of it because it's so different. Goethe was, is one of those people. But if you read Goethe in particular, um, what you'll see is that sort of other Germany, the Germany that says, Wow, I don't, I don't know about war. This doesn't seem like a good idea. He, he, he lived through the French Revolution. He was for the revolution, not for all the fighting. Right? Uh, he, he goes to Italy. <clears throat> In Germany, the, the concept is the Drang nach Süden. It's the drive or the, the, the Drang. If you heard the Sturm und Drang movement with Storm and Stress, 
Strong means in German more drive, more, it's a positive thing, it's a, it's a reaching out. So the, 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 the drive to the south, the south is calling us. There's all this beauty, and there's this other way of living that maybe we should consider, we should ponder. He goes to Italy, he writes his Italian memoirs, um, which is incredibly X-rated actually in sections, uh, erotic, beautiful, and wonderful. Um, that you can consider, but you get the psychology of the struggles. What are the tensions? What are the ideas that are animating them? What makes for a beautiful life? What's our relation to the, the, to the Roman classics? If you're in Italy, you can claim the Roman heritage as your own. If you're in France, you, you, take, it, you take those classics over almost wholesale. They, they translate beautifully in France. If you're in Germany, it's like, how much does it have to do with us? How, it, you know, it was a struggle. It was, it, the distance seemed greater. And in trying to bridge that, Goethe created a very different kind of world. And reading through him, you get a sense of all of the tensions and the fractures and the fissures that you don't get in other places. And so this, this odd, living, sort of almost fossil, if you will, Right? You have to look to a country like China. Why is China so different? Because they've had a continuous heritage, unbroken, of linguistic dominance. They've been conquered several times, never took. Right? Everyone ended up, ended up being Chinese. They got absorbed, they got retrained, they got re-educated. You can conquer us, but you just can't change us or make us speak another language. A similar thing has happened right in the heart of Europe. Um, it, it, people, right, people are familiar with the Etruscan civilization. So the first people the Romans kind of had trouble with were the Etruscans. And so they had to go out and stomp them down. And you, you can read that, that to this day people claim that you can tell where the Etruscan civilization was if you travel in Italy. You can feel the difference. You can hear the difference. You can see it. Well, the Etruscans were conquered thoroughly and well. Germany never was. And so when we look, again, if we look at the EU today, you really have a, a pretty strong uh, narrative here that you have a tension between two distinct worldviews. Or at least you probably have more distinct worldviews, but only one of them is large enough to make it count. Right? France, Italy, Spain, they knew what to do with the Greek crisis. They had a plan. Germany wasn't going to buy in. It's not our plan. Right now, today, I was, just, I was just looking at this up for the lecture. Uh, Germany has said, well, we're going to change. EU wants to change the banking rules. And Germany said, well, we'll do some, but we're not going to do others. Because we like the way we do our banking. Forget you guys. And so they put that on hold. They had new CO2 legislation for, for car exhaust. Germany said no. So they had to put that on hold. Right. They have their idea. They have their way of doing things. And it's, and it's different, and it's powerful, but it's also coherent because it comes to us and to them from a lived tradition of, like I said, several millennia. The only, I was trying to think of what example would make this, what it would mean to us today, it would be as if you came back to America a thousand years ago and you, you met someone who was speaking sort of old English. It would take you a while to work out what they were saying, but you would eventually be able to communicate. And then if those two people went back in America another thousand years and met someone who was speaking proto-English, probably after a little bit of time you'd go, oh, we can see the shared roots, we can see this shared language. And so in, say, Washington, D.C., you know, there was a people who were speaking the same language or the, 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 the proto-language that was developed into ours. 2,000 years later. Again, you can do that in China. You can do that in Iran. We don't think of that in Europe, but you can do it in Europe. In a few select places, most importantly, probably in Germany. So when you think about the literature, you think about the language, you think about the development of this culture, you, this is, the, in part, I would argue, the origins of the difference. It is, it's not, it doesn't have the same heritage. By the way, it's also important to note, I almost forgot to mention this, 
this is not a genetic thing. The, the, the early Germans wanted to say, oh, or the turn of the century Germans wanted to say, oh, we're a genetically distinct group. It turns out they've done this study, it's not that genetically distinct. <laughs> that Europe is a big melting pot. And again, it's not, it's not a nation state distinct because of, you know, as a political polity, it's almost, it's been crazy the whole time, almost the whole time. It's, it's the cultural distinctness. The, the cultural, systematic, uh, and, and contiguous beliefs, practices, outlooks, they haven't changed. Well, they've changed, they haven't evolved, they've evolved, but it's been continuous and uninterrupted. Roman ne Rome never conquered them. The Huns, maybe a little bit, but not really. And so this is what you have. Um, last note, so if you're going to go, again, if you're really thinking, well, I want to know more about German literature, which I hope you are, uh, again, go back to the Nibelungenlied. It's so telling. It's such a wonderful story in some ways. It gives you a view of the world from, you know, a thousand years ago. That is recalling a world from five or six hundred years earlier. Almost, almost lost to us, but, but there it is. And, and you'll get... You know, moments, I'm trying to think of a few moments like, ah, what are my great ones? So Parsifal is going to be killed. In an echo of Achilles, uh, he has bathed himself in dragon's blood so that he is impervious to weapons. So that makes him like Achilles immortal. You can't kill him. But while he was being bathed, a leaf <laughs> fell on his back. <laughs> right? And that leaf covered the blood, so he had his Achilles heel just further up, right, on his back. This is where you can stab him and kill him. And so through various trickery, uh, he ends up having that place marked on his back with a cross. This is the weak spot. You kill them with the cross, right? And it's this very interesting moment where this echo of the pre-Christian tradition seems to be talking back and saying, oh, that's what undid us. That's where we got stabbed. We had this weak spot. But it's there, very strong. You can, you can see the heritage. You can see the distinction. You can see the belief system. The, the importance of family. A lot of it's a family drama of noble alliances among rough equals. All, all, a very important system of precedent. <laughs> Who is more important than whom? Who's the ranking king? Is Parsifal more important than the other guy? What is a wife for? You get these incredibly impressive women, by the way. Parsifal's wife, she ends up killing Everybody, I think, at the end, as you get to the very end uh, of the Nibelungen lead, she just sort of slaughters, or ends up causing the death of just about everybody who is involved in the story. She's finally killed and, and, and brought to heel, but, but it takes a long time. It's, it's her revenge. That's actually the arc of the story. We tend to think, oh, the death of Percival, like the death of Achilles, well, that's where everything wraps up. No, no, no. It's the wife's revenge that wraps the story up. She, she, she brings you, don't stop fighting. You keep going until the bastards pay. So you get this very different notion. You also get the image of the Rheingold, that there is this treasure to be discovered. Where? In the Rhine. That's where it is. Our power, our magic, our capacity is site-specific. If you get too far away from it, Nah, you're losing your, your authority. You also, by the way, get the invisible cloak from Harry Potter. That's, that's Parsifal's cloak, by the way. This, this comes, comes straight from the Nibelungen Lied. This is, this is where, where that cloak comes from. And he uses it, by the way, Parsifal uses it in a very similar fashion. It's used for tricking people and taking advantage of them. It's a, tr it's a trickster coat. Um, of course, the influence of that comes you know, most memorably to us from Wagner's Ring Cycle. Right? The, the, that, that forms the outline of it. But not just the ring cycle. If, if, you've, if anybody's read The Lord of the Rings, I don't know if people know why, or they, of course, no, no, no single reason, but Tolkien writes this book and takes a lot 
by the way, from the German history, from the Nibelungenlied, things like the ring. Um, it, it comes directly from there, the cursed ring, the power of the ring, what happens when you lose the ring. Um, but also he said, we have a Saxon tradition in England, and it was wiped out. Norman Conquests undid this and overwrote that history. And he said, quite specifically, I want to write the myths that we would have had if we wouldn't have had, if we wouldn't have lost them. So he like retroactively wrote myths that would have been there. They wouldn't have been there, of course. But, but, but as he would have liked them to be from the Saxon conquest. And so whole sections of that epic are lifted from themes and ideas uh, and passes and just literally words, specific images and characters directly from the ancient lays and, and, and songs of, of the Germanic history. And so one of the reasons that story resonates so strongly, I mean, it's a hugely successful movie, multi-billionaire, great in the world, is, again, because this is the idea. He's drawing these elements that are there in our language. They're there in our culture because we're a West German language. I always wonder how the, what the Chinese make of all of it, right? Because some of it that's coherent to us, probably not that coherent to them. Interesting to see what the translation they have to do to make it make a little more sense. But for us, most of it resonates quite clearly, even if we don't know about the ring that has this long, long history in literature. But it's come to us, and it's still resonating. And so I sort of end up where I, where I did with, with Russian. It's, Russian history is different, by the way, heavily influenced by the Germanic, you know, this is who was, was their settling. Um, the German history is different, and it's there, and it's not going away. It, it, and, it's, and it's a continuous, powerful, uh, sort of self-renewing source of, of myth and legend and writing and intellect and education. Um, and there it is at the heart of Europe, this great sort of treasure trove, reservoir of ancient history, but, but continuous and living today. So German language and literature. 